0: Well, we are currently in the middle of a series that I have enjoyed so much, a series that we're calling Experiencing God's Love. And as far as I can tell, that phrase sums up the meaning of life, experiencing God's love, because the God who made us is the God who loves us. And one of the big purposes he has for us is to experience what his love is like and to love him in return. That's what we were made to do. But there's a challenge when we talk about God's love. For a lot of us, for most of us, we've got a pretty limited idea of what love looks like. And part of the reason we're doing this series is because we want to explore the variety of ways that God's love gets demonstrated in our lives, the different ways we experience his love and kindness to us. And today we're actually talking about one of the more challenging aspects of God's love, something that we don't always think of as loving, God's discipline and correction in our lives. I think most people in our society, whether they would call themselves a a Christian or not, have some notion of what they think God's job is. They've got kind of a job description in their mind uh, for God. And on that job description, there are two items. First is this, to accept me just as I am. And the second is to make my life easier. Now, people don't always say that explicitly, but they're operating on these assumptions. And it kind of comes out of our notion of what we think it means to love somebody. Because, I mean, like, if you love somebody, you're going to accept them, right? You're going to accept just who they are. You're, you're not going to judge them. You're not going to force them to be something that they're not. You're going you're gonna to try to validate them and uh, the choices they make in life, even if they're different from what you would do. That's, that's acceptance, right? And so if God loves us, he's going to do the same thing for us, right? And, and when you love someone, you, you don't want to see them suffer. Like you don't want them in pain. You do everything you can so that they don't have to suffer any more hurt than's necessary. And so if God loves us, he's going to do that for us, right? He's going to make our lives as easy as he can. Now, Again, people don't always say these things out loud, but I know that those are the things that people assume God's going to do because of the way they react when it doesn't happen. So I see the way people resist when they realize God is going to ask them to change something about their life. God's going to ask them, uh, call them into a, a new lifestyle, new way of living that doesn't feel natural to them, that, that, that hurts and is hard. And they say, this, this doesn't feel like an accepting God. This feels like a, a judgmental God. Or, or, or I see the way people react when uh, instead of their life getting easier, their life gets harder. And it's not just that they're upset about things being hard, because that, that, that happens. We're all upset when things go wrong. But they're also mad at God. They, they, they feel like God has sort of dropped the ball, like he hasn't done what he was supposed to, because that's his job, right? To, to, to make things easier when they're difficult. So, so what do we do with that? We're going to be asking the question, what if God's love doesn't mean simply accepting us just as we are, and it doesn't mean simply making our lives easier? What if God's love sometimes looks like the opposite of that? And if so, how could that still be loving, The passage we're looking at today is in the New Testament book of Hebrews. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 12 with me. It starts at the back of the Bible. So if you want to start from the back and flip forward, uh, that's the easiest way to find it. Uh, And the book of Hebrews was originally a letter that was sent to a group of uh, Christ followers in the first century. And they had become followers of Jesus and their community started to really push back on them about that. And it started to get so hard in their community that a lot of people were saying, hey, is this even worth it? Like, if following Jesus gets us this, maybe we should kind of, you know, back off of this new faith, go try something else, because it's tough. So the author of Hebrews is trying to encourage them to say, hey, you got you to stick with it. It is worth following Jesus. And he's specifically addressing, what do you do when following Jesus gets really hard and you start to suffer? And he's kind of reframing how we look at suffering. And I think the categories he uses here are going to be really helpful for us. So I'm going to read the whole passage here. And then we'll jump back in and we'll kind of see what it means. Hebrews 12, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. But how much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and your weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed." It is such a good gift that God speaks to us in his word. So let's thank him for that. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'm going to start by explaining verse 4, which is the weirdest one here. So let's just get that out of the way. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Yikes, what does that mean? Like, I I try to resist sin, but I I don't know that I've ever bled for it. Uh, What is he talking about here? Uh, It really helps to remember the specific sin that this audience is being tempted with. Uh, They're under this pressure from their community to abandon their faith in Jesus. But the author is saying, hey, look, in other places in the Roman empire, it's actually worse. Like you're getting pressure from your friends, but there are places where people are being physically threatened and even killed for their faith. And so he's saying, it hasn't gotten to that point in your community yet. So you haven't resisted that pressure, that temptation, all the way to the point that other people have. Now, this is uh, sort of a reality check. This is meant to be both kind of a, a comfort, but also a challenge. It's a comfort because he's saying to them, look, it is not as bad as it could be. You've still got a lot of things to be thankful for, okay? But it's also a challenge. Because here's the thing. If God is willing to allow his people to be murdered for following him, He's willing to allow a lot of suffering in our lives. And so what this verse is doing is not not saying, okay, you need to feel bad about how you're handling suffering. God never shames us for finding difficulty difficult. What he's saying is, look, if this pain right now is really hard for you to cope with, and it's actually making you think of walking away from God, you got to ask the question, am I approaching suffering with the right perspective? Because it could get worse, and how will I be prepared for the, the chance that that happens? So that's what he's doing. He's saying we've really got to think about how we think about suffering. And so uh, what he does is he puts a new category on what suffering is. And this is what he says. It is God's training. God's tool for training us is hardship, is hardship. So when you're reading the Bible, uh, when we talk about this all the time, when you see a passage, you look for repeating words to try to get an idea of what the theme of the passage is. So there's a repeating word you probably noticed in here, and it's the word discipline comes up in verse 5. It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Verse 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. Verse 7, endure hardship as discipline. Uh, what children are not disciplined by their father? Now, when you hear the word discipline, what do you, what do you imagine? Uh, I imagine something like this. Do you need a timeout? Because you, 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 you're looking like you need a timeout. I'm going to start counting. Don't make me count. Okay, one, two, two and a half, I'm going to get to three. You know what happens when I get to three, right? I'm I'm about to say it. I'm about to say it. Okay, three timeouts. Sit on the set. I'm setting a timer, okay? That's what we imagine when we say the word discipline. It's the negative consequences someone gets for their bad behavior. Now, the word discipline in Greek, or the word that's translated here in Greek, includes that, but it means something bigger than that. The the word translated discipline here is the word pedia. The word pedia. It is related to an English word, uh, pediatrician. Because pedia is something you do with children. It's also related to a word that those of you in education would know, pedagogy. Because this is what pedia is. Pedia is the way in Greek society you would educate a child. The way you make sure that a child grew up to have good physical health, that they would have good moral character, that they would have good skills so that they could enter into society and become a good citizen of their town, their, their, their community. And so Padilla uh, includes what we think of as discipline, correction for bad behavior. Uh, So getting grounded or losing your allowance, that counts as Padilla. But so do piano lessons and soccer practice. That's Padilla as well. Eating your vegetables is Padilla. Uh, Helping your little sister do her homework is Padilla. Because not only is she learning, but you're also learning to care for other people. Uh, Discussing current events around the dinner table is Padilla. Going to church as a family is Padilla. All of these things are included under that heading. In other places in the Bible, we're told things like Moses was padiahed by the scholars in Egypt, or we're told that uh, Paul was padiahed by his rabbi, Gamaliel. Uh, this is a word that means education. Uh, the way I like to translate it is training. Pedia means training. And what this passage is saying is that hardship is one of the tools that God uses to train us, to educate us, to educate us not just uh, for our society, but for his kingdom. How can we become good citizens of his kingdom? Now, there are other ways that God trains us. The main one is through uh, his word, the Bible. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 actually says this. He says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training. There's that word, padilla, in righteousness. Another way God trains us is through the other people in our lives. The uh, Bible actually says that this is what uh, the leaders of a church are supposed to do. Uh, the elders and pastors of a church, the, the, their job is to actually sort of sort of run the padilla of this community, the training that we have in becoming like Christ. Uh, another way that we're trained is through our, our peers, other Christ followers, that we say, hey, I want you to walk with me as we learn how to follow Jesus. So just a, a couple chapters before this passage, uh, that we see this verse. It says, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. This is the reason why uh, weekend worship and uh, community groups are the two biggest things we talk about here at Christ Community is because this is how we get spurred on to grow in love and goodness by gathering as God's people uh, and working together to grow. Th- this is also the reason why membership in a local church is important because this is basically what membership means. It's saying, I want this to be the group that I train to become like Jesus with. This is the, the community that I'm committed that I'm gonna help them grow and I'm gonna let them help me grow. If I need support, these are the people I'm gonna go to. Uh, if, if I'm gonna let these leaders be the one to uh, uh, guide my growth. Uh, if someone needs to speak into my life and challenge me to grow, these are the people I'm gonna let do that. I've given them permission. Uh, my church family is the place where I want my Padilla to happen. And so God uses all these different things, the Bible, our leaders, our community to train us. But in this passage, the emphasis is on suffering, on hardship. Why would God use pain in this way? It's because hardship has a a number of uh, qualities that are really unique to it. First is this. Hardship gets our attention. It gets our attention. It is so easy to ignore things in our life, but it is really hard to ignore pain. This is how C.S. Lewis describes it. He says, pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures." speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God brings hardship into our life because it'll get our attention to pay attention to what we actually need to focus on. Another thing that hardship does is it exposes our needs. It's really easy when things are going well to just assume that you're kind of self-sufficient, you got things under control, that things are okay. But the reality is, and it's always been true, is you and I are weak and frail we're small creatures. I think, think about it this way. All, all of us are mortal, right? We're, we're all going to die. There's no, nothing changes that. But we don't think about it very much. But when you get sick, or when someone you love gets sick, all of a sudden you've got to ask these big questions in life. What am I going to do about the fact that life ends? It's an important question. You can't ignore it. it. It's always true, no matter what's going on, that we need other people. We cannot live life on our own. We've got to have each other. But sometimes when things are going well, you can act like a lone ranger, like you've got it under control. But then you lose your job, something traumatic happens, and you're forced to say, who can I reach out to because I need other people, I cannot do this on my own. It's always been true, but now you've got to pay attention to it. It exposes the need. Another thing that hardship does uh, is it, it removes our crutches. The things that we rely on to, to cope, to get through life, the things uh, that, that are not God that we say, but I lean on this like it was God. So uh, when we've got money, we feel like we, we are secure. We get our security from that. But when the, the money goes away, all of a sudden we've got to say, how am I going to be secure? I've got to lean on God. Uh, we uh, look to other people, and people when people are praising us, when they like us, when we're in their good graces, we feel like we can draw our identity from that, that opinion of other people. But when that opinion goes away, where do we turn to for our identity? We've got to go to God. Uh, when, uh, we are, um, excuse me, uh, when we are in a situation where... Um, we're in a relationship and someone loves us so much and we feel like we're drawing this sense of worth from that person. We feel like, oh, I'm valuable because they love me, but then they break up with us. What do we do? Where do we go to find that worth? It takes away our crutches and it forces us to evaluate our priorities. When you've got less time or money or energy, you've got to say, I cannot do everything. So I've got to decide what is the most important thing I can do? What really matters in life? Uh, hardship also exercises character. Because uh, all of us, we, we like to think that we're pretty good people. You know, I think I'm pretty honest, I'm, I'm pretty generous, I'm a faithful person. You know? that's, that's pretty true about me. But you don't really know if that's true until you have to do it. So when a, a project at work fails because of something you did, and you could lie and blame someone else and get away with it, that's when you know if you're an honest person or not. When the budget gets tight and your lifestyle starts to be curtailed because of that, that's when you're going to know if you're still a generous person. When you, uh, you know, suddenly become the caretaker of your spouse and they're sick and they're taking more than they give in the relationship, that's when you find out how faithful of a person you're going to be. We're like people who are standing in front of the meal and we flexing our muscles and we're saying, man, I look good. I'm tough. I'm so strong. But we've never lifted a thing. You don't actually know how strong you are, and you're probably never going to be strong until you lift something heavy. It's funny, we've got this sort of, uh, you know, double standard when it comes to physical health and spiritual health. I I think all of us know that if you want to be physically healthy, you've got to do some difficult things. You go in the gym, you say, no pain, no gain. You're going to go on this diet that's going to make you miserable for months because you want to lose a few pounds. But we think it's weird sometimes when spiritual growth is difficult, when it challenges us. But, but it would actually be weirder if it didn't require us to do hard things. Uh, doing hard things is the way we grow in pretty much every area of life, which is why God uses hardship to train us. Now, at this point, you've probably got uh, some questions. Some of you might be thinking, okay, well, wait a minute. So you're saying when suffering comes into my life, God is training me. So does that mean that if I'm hurting right now, it's because I've sinned? And God's trying to, you know, discipline me, correct me, rebuke me for that? Like is it is this sort of a reprimand? In other words, if I'm suffering, does that mean I'm in time out with God? The answer to that question is maybe, maybe. Um, like I said before, padia, it means training, and it's bigger than just correcting bad behavior, but it does include correction for sin. That's the reason why verse 5 uses the word rebuke, because sometimes when you're being trained, you need to be told you're doing something wrong but that doesn't mean every hardship is a rebuke. So when I was a, a freshman in high school, I was on the wrestling team, and uh, there was a first year that our school offered wrestling. Uh, that, that grade level was the first grade that you could actually be in wrestling, and so that meant everybody on the team was as scrawny and inexperienced as me, which meant our coach's job was to inflict as much pain as possible to actually get us into shape so we can actually uh, do well uh, in, in our tournaments. Uh, and so he was really good at his job, uh, and he would train us in all sorts of different ways. Sometimes uh, he was simply teaching us a new skill. He, he said, you got to learn these takedowns, so you're going to do the same takedown again and again for an hour until it just wears you out. But at the end, you're going to you know, have this down. You're going to have it figured out. It was difficult, but it was good for us. Sometimes uh, he was actually trying to correct something that was wrong. So uh, we'd go to a tournament, and we'd just get clobbered by the same move over and over again. And so we'd spend the whole practice on Monday, you know, breaking out of headlocks again and again and again. And after 15 minutes, it was no longer fun to be on the team. Sometimes uh, we were just horsing around. We were doing something we shouldn't, and he had to get our attention, so we would run laps until we passed out. And it was just miserable. And you can see why I quit after one year. <laughs> one time, though, we were practicing. It was a pretty you know, tiring practice, and it started snowing outside. And our coach you know, looked at the forecast, and he said, hey, it's going to be six inches of snow. So guess what, guys? I'm, I'm actually going to send you home early. And I thought, praise God. The man has a heart. The suffering can end for today. I can go home and rest. But then he says this. When you go home, you're going to go inside, and you're going to kiss your mama, and you're going to say, mama, I'm shoveling the driveway. All of it by myself. (sighs) And then he says, why are you going to say that? And we didn't answer. He says, because you love your mama. Okay. And it'll make you stronger. Then he says this. He says, when you're a wrestler, you're always training. You're always training. Everything in life, whether you're on the mat or not, you are looking for everything that will make you stronger and faster and better than the other guy. And you are using it to your advantage. This is how it works in the Christian life. This is what it means in verse 7 when it says endure hardship as training, as discipline. All hardship, wherever it comes from, whatever the cause. So sometimes God is allowing hardship into our life because there's something that we we haven't done anything wrong, but there's something we need to grow in, a new area that he wants to stretch us. It's doing those new moves, those takedowns again and again. Uh, other times, the hardship is in our life because uh, we need to be corrected. Uh, we're, we're running laps. We, we need, God needs to get our attention. But other times, the hardship is not related to any of our behavior. It's just something that came along for some other reason that God had. Uh, but it's a snowstorm. It's the random activity. But God says even that, if you're a Christ follower, you treat it as training, as an opportunity to grow. Even when you're not on the mat, that's what you're doing. Everything you can, you use to make you stronger and better. And the question still remains, how do we know when what God is doing in our life is taking aim at some specific sin that he really is rebuking us? Now there's no surefire way to know this, but here, here's some questions that I ask. First is this, is what I'm experiencing, the pain I'm experiencing, the natural consequences of sinful behavior that I'm doing? Because here's the thing, God does not need to invent new painful things to, to get your attention about sin. A lot of times he can just sort of let the, the, the bad effects of that sin take place in your life and you say, hey, this, this hurts. So sometimes, uh, you know, take for example, if your parents don't trust you and you're like, why can't I have a good relationship with my parents? It might be God saying, hey, you should pay attention to this because you've been lying to them about a lot of things and so maybe you should come clean. Or, or maybe your health is declining and it might be that God is saying, "Hey." Uh, this is happening because food and alcohol have become your coping mechanisms instead of me. It, it, you might be experiencing conflict with your spouse, and uh, maybe you've been growing more and more distance. And maybe sex has become harder and harder. And that might be God saying, hey, you really need to do something about your porn habit because that's the natural result of that. God doesn't have to come up with new things. He can simply let the result of sin get our attention, become the painful thing in our life. And so sometimes you've got to say, is what I'm experiencing the result of painful or a result of sinful decisions. Second question to ask is this. Is the Holy Spirit bringing something specific to mind, some specific behavior or attitude to mind? It's important to do this. It's a scary prayer, but it's important to pray, God, if there's anything in my life that you want to correct, tell me what it is and let the Holy Spirit show you. Because here's the thing. The Holy Spirit targets our sin in the war against sin. He uses guided missiles, not carpet bombs. He uses guided missiles, not carpet bombs. So if you've got a vague feeling of guilt, like, oh, I just think God must be mad at me. I don't really know why, but I just feel like, oh, it's just bad. But you've asked God, and there are no specific things that come to mind that might not be the Holy Spirit. Because usually the Holy Spirit is very constructive. He points out specific things that you need to work on so you can actually do something about them, not just worry that something might be wrong somewhere in your life. He's going to point it out to you. Now, even as I talk about this, some of you are experiencing that. God is bringing things to your mind right now. Your temper, the lies you've been telling at work, the the grudge, the bitterness that you're holding against a friend. Is there something specific the Spirit is bringing to mind? Another question I ask is this, has my sin been pointed out by any external source? Is there anything else that's pointing, hey, this might be a problem in your life? If God is trying to get your attention, if he's doing it through circumstances, he's probably also doing it through other means. So if you're reading the Bible and the same thing keeps jumping out at you and you're saying, I think this is for me. Or every time you hear a sermon, it's like, oh, that, that, that thing comes to mind. That thing hits home. Or maybe you've got a courageous friend who sits down and says, hey, I'm concerned about something in your life. Take those things seriously. It might be that God is rebuking you and there is some sin that you need to deal with. But again, not all hardship is a rebuke, although it might be. But even if it's not, even if it's not, we are supposed to treat all difficulty in life as God's tool for training us. But that leads to another question. That's the second point here. Why is God doing this? What is his goal? in training us. Uh, look, look at verse 10. Uh, look at how it describes the results of God's discipline in our life. It says, God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. Uh, look again at the end of verse 11. It produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Uh, think about what those words describe. Holiness, righteousness, peace. Who, are, who do we describe with those words? We describe God with those words. So let the thing sink in for a second. God wants to make us righteous like him. God wants us to experience his peace. God wants us to share in his holiness. God's goal in training is to make us like him, to make us like him, not just into decent people or better people. He is making us totally transformed into someone who reflects his character. A verse that people love to quote when uh, they're going through hard times. If you've ever been around a Christ follower in a hard time, you might have heard them say this. It is Romans 8.28. It's a wonderful verse. It says this. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Isn't that a comforting verse? God works in all things for our good. In all things for our good. It's true, but we often make the mistake of stopping our reading at verse 28 and not reading on to verse 29. Because look at what it says in context. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. When it says that God is working for our good, what is the good he's talking about? Is it the good of being comfortable or successful or healthy or rich or well-liked? No, it is the good of being conformed to the image of Jesus, becoming actually like the Son of God. Another quote from C.S. Lewis. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps you understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is, is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here and putting on an extra floor there and running up towers and making courtyards. You thought that you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. God's goal for our life is much, much bigger than our goals for ourselves. He is completely transforming us. And this is the problem with the job description that we usually give to God. If this is what God is doing, the, the job description is totally off. It is not God's job to accept us just the way that we are. Remember a few years ago, there was a song by Bruno Mars where he was uh, singing to his insecure girlfriend, his girlfriend who was worried about her looks. And in, in it he says, When I see your face, there's not a thing that I would change. Because girl, you're amazing just the way you are. And When you hear that, your heart goes pitter-patter, pitter-patter, pitter-patter. And guys, if, if you, you're married or you've got a girlfriend, like, it's probably going to win you points to look her in the eyes and say something like that. That's a good line. But for a lot of people, that's what they want God to do when he looks at us. To, to look us in the face and say, you know what? There's nothing about you that I would change. You're amazing just the way you are. And that might sound good, but God actually loves us too much to say that. God loves us enough to accept us right where we're at, but he loves us enough that he won't simply leave us right where we're at. God accepts us, but he refuses to accept the things that we do that destroy ourselves and destroy other people. We talked about the prodigal son a couple of weeks ago, and it's just this amazing picture of God's acceptance, isn't it? That when the prodigal comes home, he doesn't have to clean up his act. He doesn't have to do anything to pay back his dad. He doesn't have to, you know, figure things out before he comes. The the father just runs out and grabs him and embraces him and holds him and celebrates him and throws a party. It's wonderful. But he ever thought about what happens next? Like the next day or week or year as he's living with his father again. Don't you think that there must be some things in his life that got to be adjusted, that, that his thinking and his feeling and his acting have to change? And it's not because the father didn't accept him. It's precisely because the father accepted him. It's because the father loved him and welcomed him back that his life needs to change. That's what's transforming him. He's no longer being a rebel. He's actually learning to enjoy life as a full-fledged son of his father. That's what transforms him. The book of Ephesians, it uses uh, this wonderful image of what God is doing in our life. And it says that we are God's artwork, God's masterpiece that he is working on. And C.S. Lewis, again, he he unpacks this image in a great way. He says, you know, if you've got an artist and she is doing a sketch in a book and it's like a practice drawing, like she's not worried about every single detail there. It doesn't have to be perfect because it's, you know, it's it's not that big of a deal. It's just sort of a throwaway kind of thing. But... When when she's working on her life's work, when she's working on her masterpiece, every detail counts, everything matters. She is going to scrutinize and work hard on every little bit until it's exactly how she wants it. It's got to be perfect because it matters to her. She's got lofty goals for it because it is close to her heart. It means something so much to her. The same is true when it comes to us and God. God loves us so much that he puts us through this refining and this painful transformation and this scrutiny because he wants so much for us. This is the way Lewis sums it up. He says, it's natural for us to wish that God hadn't designed, had designed us for a less glorious and less arduous destiny. But, when we are, but then we are wishing not for more love, but for less. God loves us too much to leave us the way we are. And this leads to the third point. God's motive in training us is parental love. It's parental love. This is the key to the whole thing. You've got to understand this. When God trains us, when he rebukes us, when he corrects things in our lives, he is not doing it because we are his enemies. He is doing it because we are his children. Now, to some of you here, I've got to be honest, this doesn't apply to you. This is talking about uh, the people who have said to God, God, I, I want to be a part of your family, who have surrendered to Jesus and said, God, I want to come home. I want you to uh, be my father. I want to be adopted as one of your kids. And for some of you, you're still exploring the whole God thing. You don't know what you think about this. And we're really glad that you're here. And I actually think it's important for you to hear this aspect of what it means uh, to be a part of God's family. Because if you're going to get adopted by him, he's going to take a serious interest in your development as a person. And it makes sense when you think about it, doesn't it? I mean, think about this, when you see a random kid in public who is acting out, do you go and put them in timeout? Do you go and ground them? Do you take away their allowance? Like, if you go and do that, you'll get arrested. You know that, right? That's the, the parent's job to do that. That's why verse 8 says, if you're not disciplined, then you're not legitimate. You're not true sons and daughters at all. Because that's what parents do for their kids. And if you're not being disciplined them, they're not treating you like their kids. On the other hand, those of you who do have kids, who are parents, how loving is it, really, if you never correct your children for anything? I mean, think about what would happen if parents tried to live out that job description that we put on God. You know, I'm just going to accept my kids however they are, whatever they're doing, and I'm going to do everything I can to make their life easier. What would happen to those children? How would they turn out? Probably not well. Uh, studies have shown again and again that children thrive, uh, both as children and as adults, if they get two things from their parents, and they've got to have both of these things. Uh, if they get high relational warmth from their parents, the, the affection and the tenderness and the closeness, and they get high expectations from their parents. If you give the expectations without the warmth, you can imagine what that's like. It's going to feel like being raised by a drill sergeant. It's correction and challenge, but no support, no encouragement, no acceptance. If you receive, though, all the warmth and the affection, but none of the expectations, at first it seems nicer, but it's equally as bad for a child's development. And I think most parents know this instinctively, right? Kids need to know what's acceptable and not. They need coaching and they need consequences, It's not just the clear boundaries that they need. They they need to do hard things. Kids need to be pushed beyond uh, what they can do so they can stretch and grow and mature. That's that's how we develop. And and kids who are raised where they're never expected to do anything, uh, they actually grow up insecure and anxious in life. And and the reason for that is it it felt like their parents were being really nice to them, very supportive, but they end up not getting their kids confidence so that they can navigate a challenging world because they never stretched them to do that. So both of these things are expressions of love, both relational warmth and high expectations. That's the reason verse 6 says the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens everyone he accepts as his son. God's discipline is a sign of his love and acceptance, not the opposite. You see, God gets both sides of the parenting equation he offers that warmth, that, that, that embrace from the, the, the prodigal father. You know, he, he runs and he delights and he celebrates. We've been talking about that all through this series. If you need a refresher, go and listen to the past sermons. But God also has those high expectations. He challenges us. He corrects us. He wants something more of us. He wants to make us something incredible. And he won't be content until we are fully healed of sin and we fully look like Jesus and we are mature in all the ways he wants us to be. This, too, is a sign of his love. And I'll be honest, this is a really tricky topic to talk about. Because when you talk about God as a loving father, the the reality is so many of us have really mixed feelings about our own dads. Actually, some of us don't have mixed feelings. Some of us have really clear feelings about how we don't like our father. And, And the truth is no father ever reflects the goodness of God the Father. It can be really hard when we're talking about uh, things like discipline. If you have had an abusive parent, especially, when we say something like, God brings pain into your life for your good, He he brings hardship in your life to grow you, like you might get that intellectually, but it brings up all sorts of associations, all sorts of things in your heart that you say, ugh, like I I can't go there. I I just want to let you know. When we talk about God as a father who disciplines us, this is not what we're describing. We're not talking about abuse. And I also wanna let you know that if you are in one of those kind of situations, if someone in your family is hurting you, where you are being abused, you do not need to stay in that. We can get you help. I would encourage you, please reach out to someone who can help you. If you don't know how to get help, You can come to anybody who's here on staff at the church. You can pull us aside on a weekend. We've got staff name tags on. You can call the church, email the church. You can show up at the church during the week, and we can get you help. You do not have to stay in an abusive situation. You know what leads to abuse? There are a lot of factors, but at some level, abuse is rooted in insecurity in the neediness in a parent's life. They need to be in control. They need to not be bothered or not be burdened by someone. They need to be respected or admired or appreciated. And so they inflict those demands, those needs on their kids. And when their kids can't meet those needs or their kids feel like an obstacle to those needs being met, they take it out on their kids. And honestly, even those of us who are parents who are not abusive, at some level we all have a bit of this problem. A lot of the ways that we screw up as parents are the result of treating our kids like they're either the solution to our neediness. You're, you're going to make me feel good about myself. You're going to make me feel okay about my life. You've got to love me. Or we treat them as if they're the barrier to what we need. If you could just get out of my way, I could get on with what I want to do. But either way, whatever it is, we are not looking out for the best interests of our kids. We, we are not saying, what can I do to meet their needs? We're saying, what can they do to meet our needs? But here's the thing about God. He doesn't have any of those needs. God is not needy. He is not insecure. He has all that he needs in himself. He is fully complete and happy. And he, we cannot get in the way of his needs, and we don't, he doesn't need us for anything. That is actually the reason God can love us so well. He can actually look at us and say, what do they need? What is going to be best for them? How can I think thoughtfully about what's going to grow them the best? Not just what makes me feel secure. And that's the reason he can offer us that warmth and love and acceptance. And it's also the reason he can lay down boundaries and disciplined. Now, here's the thing. We we are going to have a hard time experiencing anything in our life, anything difficult in our life, uh, through the filter of God's loving parental care until we are convinced that God actually is a good father, and he really is looking out for us. The way to do that, though, is by doing what it says in verse 2. It says, we fix our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. This is really important. Jesus reveals who God is. If you are ever wondering what God is actually like, what he feels about you, what he thinks about you, look at Jesus. That's where you're going to get the answer to the question. And when you look at what Jesus did on the cross, when God showed up and actually went to the cross for us, it proves to us That God loves us beyond our wildest dreams. Here's how it changes our perspective on suffering when we see Jesus on the cross. First thing it does is this. It shows us that God is not distant and he's not aloof. He's not hanging out, you know, up in heaven feeling good and and saying, "Well, man, that's a tough situation for you guys. He's actually getting down in the muck and the mire and saying, I'm going to take pain on myself. And so for whatever reason, God allows pain into your life. One of the reasons cannot be because he just doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. He doesn't care. He's actually close and near, and he knows exactly what it's like to be in your situation. And you can trust a person like that. The the other thing the cross does is it proves to us that God is for us and not against us. He is for us and not against us. Because what Jesus did when he went to the cross is he took on all of the punishment that we deserved. He took on all of the pain that we deserved. He took took on all of the, the, the payment that we owed, and he paid it. He took it all away. And what that means is God is not uh, out to pay us back and, uh, and get retribution against us because Jesus already took that suffering and that penalty. It's already gone. It's already taken care of. So whatever else your pain means, it is not God is, you know, looking out to punish me and, and get me for that. Whatever he's doing, it is not that because he has already taken the penalty away. God is for us, not against us. He's not treating us as enemies. He's treating us as children our difficulty does not have to shake us to the core because we are convinced when we look at Jesus that he's already treated us with love, that we are already sons and daughters of God and that identity is secure. We can endure all hardship as training because we know that God is not out to destroy us. If God wanted to destroy us, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. He would have just destroyed us. Because Jesus' suffering saved us, our suffering can shape us. Here's how we're gonna wrap things up. In your weekly welcome, in the outline, there's a final point on there, and it says this. Your response to training is, and then there's a blank. I'm not going to tell you how to fill out that blank space. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a moment to ask the question, how do I need to respond to what God is doing to train me in my life right now? So in a moment, we're going to sing another song, a song about God's love. Uh, and as we do that, we're going to receive our gifts and our offerings. But before we do that, I'm going to give you a moment of silence. We're going we're to pray together, and, and we're, I'm going to give you a chance to respond to God. And, and here's my hunch. I, I'm pretty sure this is happening for a lot of people. There are things in your life God is trying to get your attention about, and you need to turn from that sin. You need to do something about it. You need to do what the first verse here says. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. You've got sin to throw off. And so what I want you to do right now is actually respond to God's discipline in your life and say, okay, I, I repent, God. I was wrong. That The sin is destroying me. It's hurting other people. It's dishonoring you. And I don't want to do it anymore. I need your forgiveness. And I need you to change me. You, you might even need to resolve and say, God, here's what I need to do. I'm going to actually confess this to another person because I, I can't do it on my own. I need help. I'm going to go talk to my friend. I'm going to go talk to someone in my family. I'm going to say, I need help with this. Here's what I've done. You help work on me with this whatever you need to do to, to, to uh, work on that thing that God is pointing out in your life, this is the time to do that. So let's take a moment now. I'm gonna give you uh, just a minute in silence and then I'll close us. God, we want to thank you that when we confess our sin, that you have promised that you will forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, that you, that you don't uh, just shame us, you, you forgive us, that you, you cleanse us, you change us and transform us. God, give us the power to be different. God, we, we pray right now that as we sing that we would experience your love. God, we pray that as we've confessed our sin to you that we would realize that we are in Christ, And that being in Christ means that you look on us as your children and you say the same thing to us as you said to Jesus, this is my son, this is my daughter whom I love and whom I'm well-pleased. God, I pray that you would help us experience that, that sense of love and affection from you, that we would see that you are a good father and that we are your children and we would see all in our life as your loving care. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.